Amen. Hallelujah is a, com- a command to praise the Lord. And thank you, choir, for reminding us he is worthy for all that he's done for us and so much more. He is worthy. Thank you for reminding us to praise the Lord. Jessica Mozo, how long have you been in the choir? Uh, since 2000. Since 2000, 22 years. And today is a big day. Yes. Happy, happy birthday. Thank you. Yes, indeed. We're a family. We like to celebrate birthdays. Miss Annie Ashby over here has a big one coming up tomorrow, right? Tomorrow, 9-0. Congratulations, happy birthday, yeah. And then the next day, on Tuesday, uh, Faye Ivey, many of you know Faye Ivey, who's been a member of this church for a long time. She's a faithful uh, at-home member who's unable to come physically, but she turns 90 as well on Tuesday. So Faye's watching at home. Happy birthday, Faye, yeah. McKenna Parker just turned, where is she? She turned 22, there she is, last week. And then Rachel Gregory had a big one. Uh, she was in Louisiana last week celebrating 3-0. And uh, we went as a staff and had a hibachi luncheon. That's what she wanted for her, uh, and I said, I made a joke about it. I'm not sure we can swing a hibachi lunch on the church credit card. And she said, I got a coupon. And so we, uh, <laughs> we went and, and with her coupon, uh, we celebrated uh, Rachel's birthday. So thank you all for being a part of our church family and all that you mean here. I'm probably missing all kinds of people, but um, you know, it's good that, that we remember each other on these special days. Today, we get to begin a new series. Y'all pray for your pastor. I know you pray for me regularly, but this is a, a hard season. I'm coaching May's third and fourth grade soccer team, and there's a lot of yelling that goes on because those fields are big now this year, and uh, I'm not sure my voice is going to hold up throughout the season, so pray for my voice, and maybe I wouldn't yell so much. Maybe that's the problem. Uh, We'll see. (laughs) We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, which I'm excited about because it's a a really relevant, practical kind of letter for a church like Woodmont, for any church. And what we're going to see is that it's actually kind of a misnomer to call this 1 Corinthians. When we read the rest of Paul's letters and and the book of Acts and piece together what was happening between Paul and the Corinthian church, we know this is actually the second letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And if you think that's difficult, uh, just keep in mind 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that he wrote to Corinth. I was telling a friend that last night, and he said, what happened to those letters? Why don't, we, why don't we have those? And I said, I don't know. It's a good question, but the Lord knows. And First and Second Corinthians are in our canon of Scripture, and therefore God intended for us to have them as words of truth to live by and to apply to our lives. So I'm excited about diving into this great book. If you think, what in the world was going on in Corinth that Paul had to write them four different letters, what was happening uh, in their situation, there was a lot going on, okay? The church in Corinth was really similar to our churches today, had same kinds of issues that churches do today. Did you know that churches have issues? Let's, Let's not pretend that everybody's okay and perfect, okay? Churches have their issues. The Christians in Corinth struggled mightily with questions such as, how should we handle disagreements in the church? How does the gospel change how Christians should view the institution of marriage? What's God's plan for human sexuality and how do Christians live that plan out faithfully in the midst of a culture that's, that's deeply opposed to a Christian ethic? How does the gospel tear down barriers 
that we tend to put up between ourselves and other people. 1 Corinthians really is a response to a lot of these questions that the Corinthian church actually wrote down in a letter. We don't have that one either, Brad, I'm sorry. But they sent it to, uh, to Paul. We know that he was responding to that letter too. And uh, Paul is deeply concerned with this little group, this little congregation of Christians that live in this very uh, interesting city called Corinth. He's very, uh, as a pastor, he's trying to make sure that they remain faithful as a body of Christ in the midst of a deeply unfaithful culture. He had planted the church there when he was on his uh, second missionary journey. We know that he stayed in Corinth about 18 months working with his new friends, former uh, Jewish converts, Aquila and Priscilla there in Corinth. They were tent makers. Look at this map here. I, I hope you can see this. It may be kind of hard to, to see, but basically you can see this is Greece here, and this is the mainland of Greece, and Corinth was on a little isthmus, a little land bridge that connected uh, the Peloponnese Peninsula, I'll say that three times fast, to mainland Greece. And this was, you know, down here is where Jerusalem was and or is. This is Israel down here. And Paul's kind of home base for his missionary journeys was Antioch, Syrian Antioch, not Pisidian Antioch over here. And his, his first journey was this kind of purple one here that just kind of went around this area that we call Galatia back then. You know, churches like Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And then his second trip is this orange one that went all the way out to Greece where he planted a church in Philippi. And apparently he really loved those people. We're going to get to Philippians, I promise, this fall. But first we got to get through 1 Corinthians. And then he went down to Greece, went to Athens, had, you know, the, the Acropolis speech. And, and then he went to Corinth. And that's where he planted this little church called the Corinthian church. Uh, you can see that Corinth, go to the, do we have a picture, I think? Is there a picture too? You saw, here it is. This is, you can't really see it that well, but this is Corinth today. And this is the land bridge. And you can see the canal right here that was cut in 1893 that really now makes the Peloponnese an island, interesting enough. And there are several bridges you can kind of see that go across the canal now. But what a great strategic location, right, for any city to be in because you had a big port on this side, and you had a big port on this side. You had the Corinthian Gulf and the Saronic Gulf on either side of Corinth. So very, you know, great spot for trading, you know, busy, busy harbors on both sides of Corinth. It was a very affluent city, therefore. It was obviously a, a city that had lots of resources because there were so many goods and, and so much income traveling through the city. We'll talk more about it in a minute, but Paul planted this church in Corinth around 49 AD or so, and, and he had a difficult relationship with the church there in Corinth, as we said. You can gather in all these writings that he had sent these first two letters, the, the letter that we don't have, and then 1 Corinthians, and things still were not going well. These Factions, these little cliques were still forming within the church, creating deep divisions. You still had all kinds of issues in the church with uh, immorality that was rampant among people who claimed to be members of the body of Christ. So Paul made a, another visit from Ephesus to try to straighten things out, and that visit didn't go well. And, and so he went back to Ephesus and he wrote a, a third letter that he calls a severe letter. 
It was kind of a make or break moment. He was basically telling the church in Corinth, look, get your act together or I'm out. I'm done. I'm turning you over to Satan and letting you just deal with him because you guys are not listening. And thank God they repented and they submitted themselves under Paul's authority. And Titus met with Paul in Macedonia and explained, hey, the, the letter worked. They, they received it, the rebuke, and they're on the, a good path now. And that Paul joyfully writes the, the second Corinthians book that was the fourth letter uh, to them, thanking God for their, their reversal of their course. So let's talk about Corinth again. Corinth was this ancient Greek city on that isthmus, and that whole land stretch is about three and a half miles of land. And again, very affluent. It was known as a prosperous city, a city of luxury, a city of leisure. To be called a Corinthian in the ancient Greek world was to imply that person was not only sort of a lazy person, but it was also a very worldly city. So it also meant they were probably promiscuous and that they got around. That a Corinthian was not something you wanted to be known as. There was a huge temple in the middle of Corinth to the patron goddess of Corinth, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and procreation. There were 1,000 female slaves who staffed the temple there as cult prostitutes. And we know that became a, a great tourist attraction a great income generator for the church there in Corinth. Or not for the church, for the city there in Corinth. I hope the church wasn't benefiting from that. <laughs> it was actually a big issue with the church, as we'll see in the letter. And during Paul's time, during the first century, the middle of the first century, Corinth was an it city. People say Nashville's an it city, right? This is very much what Corinth was like during that time. Gordon Fee, the, the great Bible commentator, says, Paul's Corinth was at once New York, L.A. and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Athens, he said, was like a stuffy academic city. It'd be like going to Oxford or, you know, Cambridge or maybe Boston uh, here in the States. It was kind of like that, whereas this is New York, L.A., and Vegas wrapped into one place. And it's obvious when we read this letter that the Corinthian church struggled with living as people who were born again in a world that was not. Christians are supposed to be a little strange. I, I met a family member of, of someone who had died recently uh, here, and he lives in Austin. And we're talking about, uh, you know, Austin's kind of a weird place, and there's stickers everywhere that say, keep Austin, what? Weird. Keep Austin weird, right? I, I kind of think that what one of the key themes of Corinthians is keep Christianity weird, okay? It's supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different from the world around us. And the church in Corinth struggled with that. James Moffat in his, it's like a hundred year old, his commentary said that Paul was troubled by, quote, the tendency on the part of some members to make the break with pagan society as indefinite as possible. They wouldn't make that clean break with pagan society. He says the church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. The members of the Corinthian church were still obsessed. They couldn't let go of worldly things, sensual pleasure, political and social climbing and ladder climbing, and of course, monetary wealth. Corinth was a popular destination for these traveling professional orators who would charge a fee and then they would give some you know, entertaining and, and somewhat educational talk 
on how to climb the social ladder, on how to advance one's self in society, how to make friends and influence others, right? Isn't that the book from the 80s or something? Uh, this is very common in Corinth, and apparently the Corinthian church was listening to some of these guys. So Paul writes this letter to them, and this letter, again, is very practical. Leon Morris calls it the most intensely practical of all of St. Paul's letters because the letter arises out of practical problems that are besetting this far-from-ideal church in the first-century Greek culture. And he says whatever Paul touches, he deals with the light of great Christian principles. And he sees temporal things always in the light of things eternal. I love that. Like I mentioned earlier, Paul's writing this, you know, in response to some honest questions that the church in Corinth has. They asked him about marriage and celibacy, about eating food that had been previously offered to a, a pagan deity, to an idol. They asked him about how to do worship and about spiritual gifts. But before Paul deals with any of those things, he spends the first six chapters dealing with these issues that he's heard of that people have been telling him that are problems plaguing the church in Corinth. Finally, in chapter 7, he starts to deal with, with their confusion on these other matters. And then finally, he gives us a bonus section of some great doctrine and theology, a theology of love in 1 Corinthians 13. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard that read at some point. 1 Corinthians 15, a beautiful 58 verses about the resurrection we, we don't talk about uh, death a lot. We don't talk about rising from the dead either a lot. And we need to remember both of those things. So what I hope we see in this letter is that every church has their issues and that getting healthier is a worthy goal. Becoming a healthy church, a healthier church, and we're never going to get perfect, guys, because I'm not perfect and you're not either, but getting to be a healthier church is a worthy goal. We need to take seriously what it means to be a local expression of the body of Christ, a, a little C church in the, the bigger body, the universal capital C church. And I, I've said you know, many times that Woodmont's not perfect and no church is because they're all made up of fallen people with fallen leaders, but we have a chance to do what the Bible says and be a New Testament kind of church that faithfully fulfills our purpose as a body of Christ, being different from the world in order to make a difference in the world, as Jesus told us. 1 Corinthians has a lot to teach us about how to do this if we will humbly listen with open ears and open hearts. My prayer that is when we come to the end of this series in August, that we'll have a clearer picture of what it means to be a healthy, New Testament, faithful church. So let's dive into our text for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Will you stand in honor of, if you're able to, in honor of God's word? As I read our text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, one of our church members sent me a, a meme on, on social media. I don't know if it's a reel or a video. I don't know what you call it now. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm old and don't speak that language. But it was a, a guy in Bible clothes, and he was waving around an envelope, and he was singing the song from Blues, Cru Blues Clues. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. And he's dancing around, and the, the caption said, point of view you're in the Corinthian church and you're about to get roasted. <laughs> Paul's basically telling them, stop it. If you want to know what the message of 1 Corinthians is, stop it is a lot of what he's telling them because they are struggling, like I said before, to live out their new identity in Christ in the midst of a deeply unchristlike culture. So the first thing he does, I'm calling our outline, starting out strong. Because Paul is giving them a rebuke throughout this letter. And first he gives these words of greeting, and the, he's so intentional. These first three verses, these words of greeting that he gives are laying out three of the key themes that we're going to see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. So the, the first uh, point in your, your bulletin here is the, the greeting, right? Do you get that? You saw there it is. Greetings with key themes, okay? First off, he's going to tell them who he is. His identity is the very first thing he does. Look back at verse one. He says, he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He mentions that he's with this guy named Sosthenes. We don't know who that is. Obviously, the Corinthians knew this guy, but we don't know who it is. I think it's interesting that Paul often is with somebody else when he's writing. He's not a lone ranger. He's, he's doing this together with other people. I think that's really important to remember but the point of him being an apostle is key to his identity. Who is Paul? He's an apostle, a messenger sent by Jesus. That's what apostle means. 
That means he's not writing this letter to further his own fame. He's not, you know, planning first church of Paul. He's planning a church of Jesus. And he's not trying to do anything for himself because he was called. He was commissioned and blinded on the road to Damascus, confronted by the risen Christ himself. Jesus himself appeared and made Paul into this chosen and sent messenger. Why does that matter? Because it gives Paul authority to speak into the lives of these Christians. It's a matter of authority and of submission. Those words aren't very popular these days, but look at what Ephesians 4 tells us about our leaders in churches. It says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. To do the ministry? No. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Our job is, as ministers and as teachers and as leaders, all of you who lead in this church, is not to do the ministry, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry that God has called us all to be a part of as his body. We don't like words, I, I don't like words like submission, I don't like words like authority, I get nervous when people start using those kinds of words because so often authority is abused. We've seen it over and over again. Power corrupts, right? We've seen this in churches, of course. We've seen this in politics and in government. Authority is, is used to exploit and to take advantage of those who are under someone's authority. But the Bible talks about good authority and bad authority. Good authority, thank God for the good authority of loving parents who, who've raised many of you, grandparents who've had authority to speak into your life, wise coaches. I heard that, that the, the track team back here at Trevecca, that uh, they got a new coach and that Humza is doing the best he's ever done. And a lot of that's because this new coach who has authority to tell him how to run faster. Thank God for teachers. Many of you are teachers. I met uh, Bailey's mom, who's a teacher who's here today. Teachers change the world. They have authority over children to raise them up, to train them in the way that they should go. Uh, there's good authority that Evan, good youth pastors, I had a good youth pastor who in, impacted me. He had authority. Children's pastors like Rachel, who shepherd children. She's been given authority by our church to train up our children. Thank God for good authority. Paul's reminding the Corinthian church that he speaks with this God-given authority and therefore it would be wise to submit and listen to what he has to say and to obey what he has to say. Next, he reminds the Corinthians of their identity. That's part B on your outline of who they are. In verse two, he says that they are the church of God that's in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be Saints, are you a sinner or a saint? Most of you would say, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a sinner. Paul writes to the saints. If you see yourself primarily as a sinner, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? But if you see yourself as set apart, as the word for saints here is hagios, it literally means holy ones. You're a holy one if you're in Christ. You've been covered by the blood of the cross and you are redeemed and you are holy and set apart, that's what he's writing to. And the word for church here is the Greek word ekklesia. Two Greek words there, ek means out from, and kaleo means called out. It means the gathering of the called out ones. 
Those who are consecrated, that's a good word, those who are set apart, those who are sanctified and made holy, made different from the world in order to make a difference in the world. That's who we are. It'd be good to remember that. The Bible uses all these metaphors to describe what the church is. We are the body of Christ with many parts, as we're going to see in chapter 12. We're the temple the household, the dwelling place of God himself. We're the family, I like that one, of God. His own children for God's own possession and purposes. Paul says later that we're an embassy, an outpost in a foreign country in the midst of a land that we now live in. All of these illustrations necessitate that we're different, that we're set apart, that we're holy as God is holy. We're resident aliens, we're foreigners, we're refugees passing through this world on our way to a better country, on our way to our true home. That means that we are different. That means that we take God's side against sin, that we stop complacently taking sin's side against God, that we choose Jesus over our sin. That's what it means to be holy and set apart as the new covenant people of God. Finally, Paul reminds us of our necessary Christian unity. Christian unity. He's very concerned about the divisions, as we're going to see more throughout this letter, that have fragmented the church in Corinth. The last part of verse 2 says that we're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The Corinthians were so individualistic, so concerned with their own little social circles. Paul says, look, you, you're related now. You're connected intimately to all believers throughout time and space. Everyone who Christ has redeemed and, and been born again into one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Get over yourselves and play your part in something far greater than your little circle your little group, your little, uh, you know, whatever your clique is. That's a very relevant message for us today in the midst of a hyper-individualistic culture that we now live in today. Then Paul tells them about his prayers for them, his thanksgiving in prayer. It's not all bad. Paul loves these people. Don't forget that. It's like the Galatians. He's like, you goofuses. But then he says, I love you so much, brothers and sisters. This is a stern letter, but Paul sees these people as precious flock that has gone astray. And he loves them as they are, not as he wants them to be. Verse 4, he tells them honestly, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. First, he thanks God for his grace in giving them spiritual gifts. That's point A on your outline. He, he thanks God for giving them spiritual gifts. As he says in verse 5, he thanks God that in every way you were enriched in him with speech and knowledge. That's logos and gnosis in Greek, word and wisdom, truth and knowledge that comes through the Holy Spirit in their regenerated, reborn selves. They'd come to understand and to articulate how the gospel makes sense of everything, the story of everything ever. And now they'd come to use those gifts in ways that were not edifying to the body of Christ. 
But nevertheless, they are gifts from God. In fact, they have all the gifts, he says, that they need to sustain the ministry of a healthy church. Verse 7, Paul says, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, you know, I'm tempted to think, oh, if our church only had this such and such program, or if our church only had this music, or if our church only had this kind of preacher, <laughs> right, then uh, we'd be a, a better church. Paul says, no, you've got all you need. The reality is that for those who are reborn in Christ, we've been given everything we need for holiness and for uh, uh, being a healthy body of Jesus Christ. Then Paul thanks God for his faithfulness towards the church. That's point number B, point letter B, <laughs> that God's faithful. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. At the end of verse 7, he says, Jesus is coming back. The church on earth is just a temporary necessity. And then in verse 8, he says that Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless until that day. Praise God. How can we know that? How can we trust in that? Because verse 9 says, God is faithful. Do you believe that? By whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. If he's faithful to unite you to Jesus, he's going to see it through to the end. As he said in the letter to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Ultimately, the church is going to prevail. You're going to prevail. The body of Christ wins. We know that. And, and sometimes we, we think, we worry, I worry sometimes about Woodmont's future. You know, the church is going to win. We're going to be okay. Woodmont Baptist Church is going to be okay. First Baptist Church, Nashville, whoever they get to pass them is going to be okay. You know, Forest Hills is going to be okay. Churches are going to be okay because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that's a promise straight from the mouth of our Lord. Then Paul launches into an appeal for unity. This is where he starts to kind of to hammer in on what's going on. First, he gives us a picture of unity in verse 10. That's point A, a picture of what unity should look like. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Oh, Satan would love to divide us over masks. <laughs> he would love to just destroy churches. If you had told me two years ago that people would leave a church because of masks, I would say, that's crazy. Not Woodmont, but guess what? It happened, and it will happen again, as our enemy, old Slewfoot, as Ed calls him, is always looking to use silly things, use minute things to drive wedges between us. I'm doing premarital counseling for two couples right now. One of them is back there. And we talked about Satan's trying to kill your family before it starts. He's trying to drive a wedge between you as husband and wife. He's trying to ruin families. He's trying to ruin churches. And he does so by dividing, by using silly things often to divide us. The, the Greek here in verse 10 is something like, I urge you to say the same thing together to be knit together in the same mind and the same opinion. You know, one of the, the coolest signs of health that I've seen in this church is we'll go into a deacon's meeting, and, and according to our bylaws, it's not very biblical, but our, the board of directors at Woodmont is our deacon body. Um, 
And the deacons will sometimes, you know, make a proposal. One deacon will say, I think things should be this way. And it's clear that some other deacons don't agree with that. And that's okay. We can hash it out in brotherly and sisterly love. Thank God for the wise women deacons that we have on our deacon body as well. And then at the end of that discussion, we'll take a vote. And some people will vote one way and some people will vote another way. But as we leave, we are all united and agreed on whatever the decision is, we're going to support it. I've seen that. It's really cool to see brothers and sisters who didn't agree on an issue submit to one another out of reverence for God and humble themselves and move forward in unity. That's a great picture of unity in the body. But there are some clear obstacles to unity. Point B on your outline, some clear obstacles to unity. Paul had received a report from Chloe's people, Chloe's household, we don't know who that was necessarily, of quarreling. The fact that Paul's listening to a, a woman and people who are associated with a woman as a sign of respect for women in, uh, who are in Christ in the midst of a deeply patriarchal society. So I think that's interesting. But the issue in verse 12 is clear. The church had fractured into these individual parties that presented themselves, each one, as superior to the others. There was a deeply pervasive spirit of partisanship. You know what partisanship means? It means you're, you're devoted to your party. Talk about relevant to our culture today. <laughs> the Corinthians were, to use a word that I hear a lot these days, polarized by their partisanship. Leon Morris says that Paul's not attacking the teaching of any of the parties, but the fact that there were parties. He's, he's not exempting those who clung to his own name, even, the, the party of Paul. He says, stop it. Don't use my name or even Jesus' name. I think that's hilarious. They were probably like, oh, yeah, you're with Apollos? I'm with Jesus. Top that. <laughs> that's not, the problem is not that they're with Jesus. The problem is that they're one-upping each other with their partisanship. I'm sure I would be in that party. I'm sure I could see myself saying, oh, yeah, well, we're with Jesus. <laughs> it's terrible. It's the same attitude in the 1800s in this country with the restoration movement, right? Churches of Christ and all those that said, oh, we're only Christians. We're first century Christians. And they quickly moved to saying, we're the only Christians, right? And they, they have repented of some of that stuff now. But it's interesting to see that. Satan would love, again, to sow that kind of division, superiority. Our life group is way better than that one. Our Bible teaching is way better. Well, I'm in the choir, and it's better. There are better people in the choir. I sit in the balcony, so I'm superior to, you know, Satan would love to have that kind of arrogance and pride drive divisions in our church. Generally, I don't think Woodmont is a church like that, okay? I'm not calling out anything specific I've seen. I'm just saying Satan would love to do that. Uh, uh, unity must be an intentional priority in obedience to God's command because when churches fracture, nobody wins. Calvin's been driving to Waverly and he's seen all these old country churches and there's, you know, New Hope something, New, was it Steve, you were talking about all these different new, you know, those are church splits, right, that have become these other little churches and nobody wins in that kind of fractured uh, disunity. Finally, in verse 17, Paul gives us an appeal for the restoration of unity. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom like those professional orators, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
He didn't pretend to know anything among them except Christ crucified. And that's enough for a healthy church. The gospel says that parties and divisions are worthless because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. No teacher, no preacher, no prophet, no evangelist is worthy of gaining a following except to the extent that they preach Christ crucified and are calling you to follow Christ. We've seen what happens when people give their complete devotion to a cause, even a good cause. We, we know what happens when identity politics come and divide families and divide churches because people are so caught up in the identity politics of a political party. We've seen what Roy Sampa says in his commentary, that your cause may produce good things, but it can't be crucified for you. It can't restore you in right relationship with God and with others. That's what only Christ has done and what only Christ can do. Therefore, our restored vertical relationships through Christ affect our horizontal relationships. It's the basis for reconciling our horizontal relationships. We put up with each other, long-suffering. We step on toes, and I've stepped on your toes, and some people have stepped on mine, and that's okay, because we're struggling together. We put up with other fallen saints because we are also broken too. We all have issues. Life together is messy, but it's beautiful. Let's move forward as one person. As Paul says in Philippians, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're not a perfect church, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to unite us, to give us a holy sense of oneness and unity, that the world would look at Woodmont and say, wow, something special is going on there. The way they put up with one another is truly supernatural. I'd love for us all to let go of our partisan attachments, whatever it may be too, whatever good cause that we may be so uh, attached to that it actually has become an idol to us. Let's drop all the petty divisions over small stuff. And apart from Jesus, it's all small stuff. Apart from the word of the Lord, apart from what's essential to being a Christian, it's all small stuff. Let's have unity in what's essential. Let's have freedom and liberty and non-essentials. And in all things, let's have love and charity. Let's look together only to the cross of Christ as being able to make us right with God and with each other as we are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that left to our own devices, we are going to fracture and fragment. God, we know that we have disagreements over things that are really important, but they're not ultimate because only you are ultimate, oh God. God, forgive us for clinging so closely to our good causes, really good causes that do good things. But when they become idols to us, oh God, it just creates havoc. I pray that you would cultivate in us a sense of agreeing with one another your word tells us how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. God, may we have freedom to disagree over things that are not essential, and may we be united on the core things. 
that you are the triune God of the universe. You've made a way for us to come to you through Jesus Christ. God, may that be so high above all the other petty arguments that they would be seen as, as so uh, momentary and light and that we would not give more weight to them than they deserve. God, I pray that you would continue to, to unite not only Woodmont Baptist Church, but Christians all over the world, that we all have one Lord and one faith and one baptism into which we were buried with you and raised with you into a whole new kind of humanity. God, we love you, we need you, and only you can do this. So we ask you to come now and help us to submit to your good authority, to the authority of your word over us. And may we always teach and preach the truth of your goodness and your ways here at Woodmont. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. We're gonna have a time of response now. We're gonna sing one of my favorite hymns, uh, Trust and Obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So the call for you today and for me is to actually live this out. Will you go forward in unity? And now it's hard to be united if you don't know each other. So I, I'm, we're still coming up with ways to, to get to know one another uh, here at Woodmont. I'm, I'm looking forward to the potluck next week, April 10th. I hope you can come and, and fellowship with us no matter what age and stage you are. This is not like for young families only. If you're a college kid, if you're a senior adult, you are welcome to come. We'd love to see you there. But then as we get to know each other, we're gonna disagree with each other, aren't we? In those times, I pray that we will be able to humble ourselves and to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you know someone who's been fractured from their family? They can't go for Thanksgiving because politics has divided their household. I know several friends who've let that kind of talk just destroy their family. I've seen it happen at churches. My pastor friends are struggling now with the disunity in their churches over things that ultimately do not matter. Let's focus on what's essential at our church and let that unite us, the cross of Jesus Christ, as we move forward. If you're not a Christian, if you realize I'm not regenerated, I'm not born again, I've never received the free gift of salvation that God gives us through his grace, by faith in him. If you've never done that, there's no better time to do so than right now. We're an evangelical church and we still do that here. We still love to tell people about how to give their lives to Jesus. I think that's really important. And if you wanna become a member of Woodmont and you say, I'm in, I wanna be a part of what God's doing, I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you just wanna to come to the altar and pray because you're just broken over something going on in your life and you just want uh, to pray. If you wanna pray with me, I'd be happy to pray with you uh, as well. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, let's stand and let's sing this song from our hearts to God's heart. God's heart. Let's trust and obey.